Well, this year, as I've mentioned the last couple of Sundays, 2022 is going to be uh, a year of connection. That is our theme uh, for several reasons. One is, you know, this pandemic as it's going on, we all feel a sense of isolation, that we haven't been able to connect with one another as we would like. And so we really need to focus down on that. What does it mean to uh, connect? And we're going to focus on connecting with God, connecting with one another. And um, today we're going to talk about connecting to the community, because in all of those aspects. We've really felt a disconnection. Um, we talked about, though, that everything is based on first and foremost connecting with God. Right? We have to first, we connect with God, we receive His Spirit, we receive His love, we're able to love others, be patient with others in a way that we can't in our own power because we have the Spirit's power. So first it's connecting to God. Last week we talked about that we do that, though, together, that we meet so that we can stir one another up for love and good works. That was our scripture, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, that we, we stir one another. So when we gather, it's not just about us and God. It's also helping one another to draw close to God. And today, though, we're going to talk about connecting to our community, that God has put us here in this place, not just so we do a holy huddle, but so that we would connect to the larger community, that we can't fulfill our mission to grow Christ followers without uh, connecting to those around who may not even understand who Christ is at this point, um, but that's a part of our mission. So we're going to look today... Um, and, and how are we going to do that? What are some ways that we uh, can connect to our community? And we're going to look at a scripture, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, the book of Acts is also referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. And it talks about how after Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, then... Um, his church started to spread the tell the old old story. At that time, it was the new story, right? But um, it was the new story of Jesus rising from the dead and and repentance and all of this. They started to share that message, not just in Jerusalem where they originated, but to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's what the book of Acts is about. And here. Where we, we come to the point of one of the people that's featured a lot in the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul. And he is going to uh, be bringing the good news. He first starts in synagogues, but then, as we'll see, he has this opportunity where he is sharing the gospel with a very different community, and that is the, uh, the, the Greek uh, ruling class in the city of Athens, Athens Greek, which was a major city of the Roman Empire at that time. So let's read. Let's read and learn from the Apostle Paul. This is, again, Acts chapter 17. We'll start at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching uh, Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what those things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
I'm going to just pause there for a second. So he, he's brought, he, Paul speaks at the synagogues, then he's speaking in the marketplace. Some people hear him and say, uh, you know what, we want to hear more about this. So they bring him to this place called the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus was a gathering place in Athens that uh, sometimes they would do, you know, uh, the, the, the movers and the shakers of Athens would all meet there, and sometimes they would make laws, but oftentimes they would gather and hear um, different philosophers. They would hear uh, different presentations because it was the center of learning. So Paul gets an invite to this place, and so that's where the Areopagus is. So he, he goes there. Now, picking back up at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not, not far from each one of us. For, and now Paul quotes, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will, hear you again. we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among who also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. All right, long passage, but didn't want to take it out of context. Because um, you know I'm all about the context. Well, let's talk about that. So after Jesus' resurrection, again, the church is expanding to new areas and new people groups. And this particular passage it happens on Paul's second missionary journey. Hit me with a map. There we go. Uh, there's a map of Paul's second missionary journey. When there's a place you want to go, I'm the one you need to know. I'm the map. All right? That's, that's Doric the Explorer for all y'all. Um, so... He's traveling, he, he's, this is a part of Paul's second missionary journey, and what he's doing is he's traveling to the places, the churches that he started in the first missionary journey, but he's also breaking some new ground. And whatever, whenever Paul visits a place, this is what he usually does is he'll connect first in the synagogue, and then he'll expand out. And so here he he's, does that. He's, um, he's in one of the major cities of the time, Athens, and it's a, a center of, of philosophy and of learning, and we see Paul doing what Paul does. He first goes to the synagogue, and he's reasoning with the people there. And one of the reasons he starts at the synagogue is there's a, a common context, a shared context. In other words, Paul's Jewish, um, Jesus was Jewish, and so when he goes to the synagogue, he has a lot of points of commonality with the people there, right? They, are, they both worship the God, they're monotheist. They also share the scriptures, 
right? They, they share the same scriptures. So there's a lot of commonality there. And he reasons with them. Well, here, what well, we see, he, he does that. He goes to the synagogue. He's reasoning, talking to them about, hey, Jesus, the one that the Old Testament scriptures talk about, he has arrived. He's the Messiah. Believe in him. But then we see here also he starts to go to the marketplace and talk about the same things. And some people hear how Paul is presenting in the marketplace, and they say, that's interesting. You see, you know, we really haven't heard this thing about Jesus before. And because they were in a culture that liked to hear new things, liked to learn, they said, hey, we're going to invite you. Paul gets an invite to the Areopagus. It's like the, the center and if you can think of and it, a more different context than a Jewish synagogue to the Areopagus, I mean, they're, they're far apart because here you have strict monotheists, those who just worship one God and have the, the scriptures, and then the Greek philosophers who worshiped many gods. And in fact, as Paul is going about, he sees all of these, the, these pagan altars to all sorts of gods. But it's very interesting because from Paul, we can learn how do we interact with the world around us? How do we connect to the community that might not be uh, believe the same thing as we do? There's sort of this age-old question. You know, does the, does the New Testament tell us to separate from the world because the world is evil, have nothing to do with it, don't be tainted by the world? Or does it call us to connect with the world? You know, the fundamentalists often say, and I mean, I, mean I, I, I pay attention to the fundamentals myself, but, um, you know, some of the old school fundamentalists are like, no, no, you separate from the world. You know, get out of her and just, you know, maybe jump in there to save people from the flames, but you don't want to have anything to do with the world. I don't think that reflects the New Testament approach. I mean, that maybe reflects an Old Testament approach, but not the New Testament approach, because what does Paul do? He doesn't do that. He connects and he contextualizes. And we'll talk about what that means. So it's not that he doesn't hold very firmly to his convictions. We know the Apostle Paul holds very tightly to his convictions. And in fact, it's verse 16 of Acts 17, Acts 17 verse 16. What does it say? It says that as Paul is walking through Athens and he sees all of this idolatry, it bothers him. It says he's provoked within him. He, when he sees all the idols, and that word for provoked, it's disturbed. He sees that this, the, the world of Athens is much different, that they hold to some things that he staunchly disagrees with, that, that they're at odds with his core convictions. But notice he doesn't withdraw and be like, man, you guys are just all of these false gods, all of this demonic stuff. I don't want to taint myself. I'm out of here. He doesn't do that. He, and though, he doesn't compromise his message either. But what he does do is he contextualizes. He gives a master class in contextualization. So what is contextualization? It's basically he's looking for points of agreement. Yeah, it's obvious that there's grave, grave areas of disagreement, but instead of focusing on that, he looks for areas and points of connection, areas that he can engage the community the people who, who are listening in their context so that from a point of commonality, he can present the gospel in an understandable way, in a way that they would hear. So notice that's what Paul does. In, in verses 22 and 23, he first of all says, I notice you're really religious. 
As I was walking through this city, I noticed you're very religious because I see all of these altars. Isn't that interesting? We know that Paul vehemently disagreed with, it, with all of these altars, all of these false gods, but he doesn't say, hey, I noticed what, you know, that you guys are pagans and you're going to hell. He's like, no, no, I noticed you're very religious. And he points to one of these altars that was to an unknown god. So you see, those, the, the people in Athens, they were polytheists, so they believed in many, many gods. So as he's walking, there's an altar to Zeus, there's an altar to Hermes, and then because they want to make sure they don't miss anybody, a catch-all category, they have this altar to an unknown god, just in case, you know, because you don't want to miss any of the gods. And again, so what does Paul do? He could have been so repulsed by this notion and been like, oh man, they, they've even got a catch-all altar for the unknown God? Are you kidding me? You know, you're, you're serious? You're just... But instead, what does he do? He says, all right, I've seen you've had this altar to the unknown God. Let me tell you about that unknown God. And he uses this as a point of connection. It's amazing. And, and then he, he presents, he says, this unknown God, he's the creator of all things, including people. And, and, you know, he can't be contained by a temple, and he can't even truly be represented by an idol that, that uh, the imagination of people. He doesn't need anything. But, do, but don't think that this God is unknowable, he says. And the reason for that is some of the Epicurean philosophers said, yeah, I don't know if there is a God, and you can't even know him. But he's like, no, no, this God is close. You can find him because we're his creatures. And then, to show another point of connection... What does he do? He quotes a couple of pagan poets that, you know, in him we live and, and breathe and have our being. That's a quote from, uh, from pagan, a pagan poet. And then he says, we are his offspring. That's a quote from, from Eratus, who wrote in around 300 B.C., a pagan poet. So wait a minute. Paul, you're quoting pagan poets, and you're only alluding to Scripture. You're talking about idols. Paul, are you compromising? Are you compromising the gospel? No, he's, of course not. What he's doing is he's, again, contextualizing. So hit me with that definition. Ka-chow. There we go. So contextualization is the process of making the gospel and the church as much at home as possible in a given cultural context. So you know, I talk about context a lot, understanding the scriptures by making sure we understand the context in which it was written. It helps us understand what the authors intended. Well, it goes the other direction, too, so that when you're trying to express the gospel to people who might not be very familiar with it, you want to find points of commonality. You want to make sure that they understand it. So that's what Paul is doing. He's contextualizing the message because he knows if I come at these Greek philosophers quoting the Old Testament, they won't, they've never even heard of it or they've heard of it, but they don't know it. And so I'm going to find this point of commonality. I'm going to go enter into their context, right? Their place, their, their type of learning, and then I'm going to present the gospel. But Paul noticed contextualizing is a lot different than compromising. He does not compromise because look what he does. He still calls the people to repent. He still calls the people to believe in Jesus. But he just, he starts in the common context, and then he moves towards the gospel. I mean, he even goes on to say, God has raised Jesus from the dead and established him as judge of the world. 
and he goes there even though this idea of resurrection was very foreign to the Greek philosophers. Now, they, some of them believed in the, the, that the soul sort of was immortal and all of that stuff, but the idea of a bodily resurrection, that was really foreign to them. They, they, and that's why when Paul said that, they're like, uh, okay, you know, they stopped him because they're like, that's a little too much. But he still went there. Why did he go there? Well, because you, that's, that's the gospel. No matter how much we contextualize, no matter how much we connect, there'll always be things that are just strange and, and foreign. And, and, but we don't compromise those things because that's the crux of the gospel. We, we, we have to share that. And one of them is that part of that is Jesus died for our sins, as we'll see, and he rose from the dead. He was resurrected from the dead. And so that is one of those uh, core convictions. And so Paul, yes, he contextualizes, but when it comes down to it, he's, but he's not going to compromise his message. So it's, that's different. It's important to see the difference there. And what happens? There's a mixed reaction, isn't there? Um, in verses 33 and 34. Some people mock, right? They're like, oh, okay, crazy guy. You know, and then others are open. They're like, ah, We'll listen to you some more. And then others believe, right? Including Dionysius the Areopagite. What's an Areopagite? Well, it's someone who's on the Areopagus, right? The Areopagus is not just a place, but it was a council. It was this, this group of movers and shakers. So there was actually a very influential person in Athens who believes. And then also um, Damaris this, this woman, we don't know anything about, else about her, but what's interesting about Luke is in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, he wrote Luke and Acts, Luke often highlights the role of women and how they believe and, and, and how they uh, help the church grow. And, and here he does the same thing. He's like, yeah, there's Dionysus, the, Areop- the Areopagite, and then there's this woman, Damaris. But in a similar way, I think we, we can learn that when we share the gospel, yes, we contextualize, yes, we have points of connection, but we need to expect that there'll be mixed reactions, right? That some people will believe, some people will be like, mm, not so sure, but I'm open. And then again, some people will mock. So, how do we apply this? And why did I choose this scripture? Because we need to connect to our community, right? That God put us here, not just for us, but so that we would share the good news of Jesus Christ with this area, with the Pioneer Valley. And, and how? How can we apply this example to our time? A few things. First is we need to understand the difference between contextualization and compromising of the gospel. So how do we go about understanding the difference? Well, I think it's always best to look at the real deal. Like, we could talk about all sorts of examples. Oh, that's compromise. That's compromise. But instead, let's first know and understand what the gospel really is. And where do we do that? Let's look at a, a biblical definition of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right. And by the way, in our leadership development course, we'll be doing a section on the gospel. Because we use that word a lot, gospel. Well, what does that mean? How does the Bible define it? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul defines some, what the gospel is. He says this. Now, in the, he started the church in Corinth, and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. 
Okay? So he's, gonna, he's saying, all right, I'm going to remind you of the gospel if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay? So now he's, Paul's saying, all right, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. Now he's about to tell you, all right, I'm going to give you the crux of the gospel. What's the bare bones of this good news? And notice what he says. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's uh, Simon Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning died. So what, are those, what does Paul say are the important, like, uh, the, what's the crux of the gospel, the, the, the things that, the basic units? Well, that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he rose from the dead and that he was seen by all sorts of people who testified to that. So that gospel, and you can think, wow, that's really simple. Like it's, it's about what Jesus did, his death for our sins and his, and his uh, resurrection. Yeah, Paul says, yeah, that's basically the gospel. So we're not surprised when he's speaking at the Areopagus that, yeah, he'll quote pagan poets, he'll talk about idols, but when it comes down to it, he's got to talk about Jesus' death and his resurrection because that's what the gospel is. It's the good news that it's not what we do to earn our favor with God. It's not what we do that makes us right with God. It's what God did for us. That he died for our sins and then that to show the victory that Jesus won over our sins and, and death, he, he rose from the dead, a bodily resurrection so that we can look forward to that resurrection when he returns. So now you can, you can have lots of different emphases. You can have a lot of different connecting points. But this is the crux of the gospel. You can't deny the basics, right? And, and Paul says these are the basics. If you deny any of these aspects, yeah, you're compromising the gospel. So that's the first thing is it's important that we understand the difference between compromise and contextualization. We see Paul contextualizing, not compromising. Second thing that we need to do and how we can apply this to our life as we attempt to connect with a community is to find points of commonality and connect with those, those communities around us and also remove barriers. Remove barriers that are a stumbling block. Uh, so that the only stumbling block to get over, the only thing people have to really wrestle with is the gospel. And that's enough to wrestle with, isn't it? That, wait a minute, you're saying Jesus died for my sins and that he rose from the dead, he resurrected from the dead so that I can have newness of life, so I need to repent. Like, that is a huge ask, isn't it? And that needs to be the only stumbling block. So we find points of connection. Points of connection so that we have a marketplace, a shared marketplace, if you will, where we can share that good news. And then we also try to remove any barriers that would, would, uh, people would get hung up on. Because we only want them to, to say, all right, the, uh, um, you know, am I going to accept this good news? And, and, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. So what do you preach, Paul? Well, I'm preaching the gospel. I preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. He said, but I'm still going to preach it. I'm still going to share it because, but I'm going to try to make sure that that's the only stumbling block. So knowing the difficulty of accepting Christ, Paul seeks to remove the barriers and find common points. He does that in Athens, right? He identifies this pagan altar and says, yeah, let me tell you about that God, even though we're like, Paul, that's pagan. 
But no, it's a point of connection. He quotes, again, those pagan poets. And so we need to ask ourselves, all right, what are points of contact that, that, that I can use to connect to the non-Christians, the unchurched folks around us, right? What are some of those things? Think about that. Maybe it's sports, right? The NFL playoffs are on, right? That, that's, that's just a neutral thing. But sports are a way to connect with people, a common context in our culture. Uh, we have the gymnasium. We, uh, you know, it's a good way to connect with people. Uh, parenting, right? If you're a parent of young children and you meet another parent of young children, there's a point of commonality there. Also, volunteering. When we serve our community, that automatically creates a point of connection because it's hard for the community to be like, oh, and withdraw if you're helping, if you're blessing. That's why we need those points of commonality. On the flip side, though, we also say, what are some barriers? What are some barriers that need to be removed because I know this will cause a stumbling block to that person? They won't be able to hear the message. So I have a friend who is a uh, missionary in Bangladesh, and uh, Bangladesh is a, a largely Muslim cult uh, culture and country, and so she wears a headscarf when she's there. Now, she never wore a headscarf in America, why? Because it's a different context. So even though she's not Muslim, she knows that if I don't wear this head covering, it would be a stumbling block to, the, to these people because they would just be like, why shouldn't she wear a head covering? They would be focused on that. And on the flip side, she has lots of points of connections because she volunteers in the healthcare field, and that's all I'm going to say, uh, so that she can serve and connect and bless, and that provides openings. So contextualization. But don't think that the only people who contextualize the message is, like, missionaries. Every church contextualizes. We, like, we contextualize. See, we have to make sure we, we realize that because very often where, and I feel like many fundamentalists go wrong, is that they conflate their culture with the gospel so they assume, yeah, I've got to contextualize to reach other people, but we, you know, we're just a New Testament church. Every church is a contextual church. The reason we do certain things is because we happen to be in this place in this time. And so it's important to understand what's the crux of the gospel, what are those core convictions. We hold tightly to those things. But in other areas, we contextualize because we're contextualized. Right? There's no way around that. So we have to be aware of that. And, and it's also like that in our culture, we have different contexts as well. And so what I mean by that is even in the same church, we have some people, uh, uh, we all have different upbringings. I mean, some of us have similar upbringings. Some of us have different upbringings. There's different generation. There's generational differences, right? So some things that help you connect with one group don't help you connect with another group. And in fact, a lot of times church um, uh, Conflict is caused by these generational differences, but it's really just a difference in contexts. So example is older generations tend to like formality, right? Call me Reverend Dr. Joe Green. I'm like, oh, what's, who's that? Uh, whereas younger generations don't tend to do that, um, like wearing robes and all of that stuff. And that's more of a stumbling block to younger generations. Uh, another example, tattoos, right? I got a tattoo when I was 40 years old. Why? Well, because I saw a lot of the 20-year-olds I was playing basketball with, they had tattoos. And I'm like, okay, 
if I get a tattoo, they're going to ask me, why did you get that? What's that about? And it was an opportunity for the gospel. Whereas older generations like, ooh, you know, that's, and I definitely would cover that if I was in Africa too, because there's a, a, a close connection with paganism and tattoos there, but it's a context thing. So it's, what I'm saying is that the same things that help us reach one context can be uh, uh, a detriment to others. And we just need to understand that so that the important thing is, is that whenever we're trying to communicate, we, we try to get into the other person's shoes. We put ourselves in another person's shoes, another person's context, and say, how can I share the message in a way that is understandable, that will be received? And that's the, that's the next point, is find and enter the marketplace. All right, Paul saw the marketplace. He, he started in the synagogue, but he went into the marketplace to share the good news. We also need to move into the marketplace of ideas, right? And especially because in America, the church is no longer the cultural center, right? It used to be where if you just had a good church service, like our culture was, was very Christian, and so people would just come and you'd share the gospel here. Like people would come. But this is no longer the marketplace of ideas. Now this is more of an in-group. Yeah, we know we're, we're believers, but we have to figure out how are we going to go into the marketplace to share the good news. That's why attractional church models don't work very well anymore. They work maybe up until the 90s, but because our church is no, our culture is no longer churched, that basically if you're like, hey, let's have a good church service and attract people, what do we do? We attract people who are already Christians. And then we just shuffle sheep around. And we need to make sure that we are reaching new people, that we are finding people like the Areopagus, uh, people who, for, for, for them, this Jesus thing, this is weird, but it's new, and, and, and they hear it. And some will mock, but some will believe. So it's important that we understand that and find the marketplace. That's one of the reasons why we've been expanding our online presence why? Well, because in our context today, where is the marketplace? It's online. So we want to make sure that we share the gospel and connect with people online. Um, whereas 100 years ago, we'd go to the common in South Hadley, I'd set up a soapbox, and I'd just preach, and people would gather. But now, where is that common? Where is that marketplace? It's online. So we have to make sure that we're online. Similar, in a similar way, we just have, uh, started an Instagram account. Why? Well, because... One marketplace for people over 40 is Facebook, and we got that. But we're like, all right, we need to make sure that we're on Instagram because that uh, uh, goes to a little bit younger crowd. But see, the, the idea, though, is where's the marketplace? And then connect with it. And then finally, we have a mission to love God, to, to worship God, to love people, and to grow Christ followers. That vision is only accomplished when we connect with people in relationships, when we connect with real people, because the gospel is not just a concept to know. The gospel is a life-changing truth that people, real people, accept or reject. So just putting it out there, I mean, that helps because God can do whatever he's going to do, but we, we need to connect with real people who haven't believed the gospel, and that's done in relationships. And so the part of the vision is how are we going to do this is we're going to love our community in such a way that they would miss us if we were not here. Okay, that's a part of the vision. 
It's like, well, is, are you pandering to people? No, we are trying to contextualize. We're trying to create relationships of blessing so that when we are uh, sharing the gospel, people, and we're, we're serving people and we're loving them, people say, well, what, so t- tell me what's your motivation? And we can talk about Jesus. Jesus is our motivation. He's changed our lives. And it's, oh, it keeps minds open longer when you're serving people in love. So right before the pandemic, I was interviewing different community leaders and saying, hey, what is a compelling cause that Second Baptist could get behind and really bless the community for? Why? Because if we're serving people, we're building those relationships and we're able to connect with our community in a way that blesses them but also doesn't compromise the gospel. Now, when the pandemic hit, then we felt like, all right, what's the compelling cause? As well, we don't want to be a part of the problem, right? We, want to be, we don't want to be the, the super spreaders. We want to bless our community. We want to take part in what we're all doing to, um, to protect one another. But long term, we need to think more about that. How can we bless our community? How can we make those connections so that folks hear? And then that final thing we learned from Paul is as we connect to our community, Yes, we need to do our part and make sure that we connect, that we contextualize, that we're removing stumbling blocks and making points of connection. But the fact is, God is the one who brings the dead to life. God is the one who takes the the message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit quickens us and and raises us from, from death to new life as we believe in Jesus. And so it's okay if some people mock, because they will. Right? When we say, no, Jesus died, and rose from the, died for your sins and rose from the dead, and they're going to be like, that's silly, that's ridiculous. But there will be some people who believe. Hallelujah, there will be some people who believe because God quickens them. But then there will be others who are just open, and we want to make sure we maintain that openness as long as possible because for some people, and many of you, it took several touches. It took several people saying, yeah, uh, you know, I trusted in Jesus, and it changed my life. And they're like, oh, okay, I'm not so sure you're really different from me. But then another person who's, who's more like them says that, and they go, wait a minute, maybe there's something to this. But their mind is, was kept open because we're loving on them, and we're, we're removing these barriers, and we're connecting to them in service. And then eventually God uh, puts it all together for them. And that's what we want to do. That's why we need to connect with our community. 2022, we have a mission And that is that God's love, God's life-changing gospel has gone out throughout the world. It's changed our lives, and we want others to know that truth. We want others to know that blessing. And so let's do this. Let's make sure that as we connect to God and connect to one another, that it, it stirs up, it fills us up, so that then it pours out into the community. And then that changes the world. And we have an example in the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Dear God, would you guide us and show us how we can connect with our community? Lord, even now, show each one of us here. We all have neighbors. We all have friends. Show us those points of connection that we can step into, or even uncomfortable situations. But we would step into those points of commonality so that we could share your good news. Not because we're supposed to, God, or we're fearful, but because we are full of your love 
And we've been so transformed by the truth that we're willing to go anywhere. We're willing to step into the heart of paganism, Lord, to, to, to share your word like Paul did. But so, Lord, wake us up and, and show us how to do that. Lord, right now, bring to mind those people in our, in our lives that we could serve, that we could connect to. And then, Lord, show us how we can serve our community in spirit and in truth. And thank you, Lord. Thank you that you, you didn't stop with Jerusalem, that you went to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and that you even brought your message here so that we could believe. Lord, may we continue to share that good news. And thank you for including us in your world-changing, life-changing, eternity-changing work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.